All right, you can turn to Genesis if you want to get a head start. That's at the beginning of, of the Bible. You know that. Um, last week, we began um, <clears throat> leading up to Christmas by taking our first look at a really basic but very important question, which is why did God have to become a man? Why did God have to become a man? And, and, and uh, why did he decide to become a man? And the emphasis last week was really on how in becoming a full-fledged human being, Jesus, God the Son, was able to walk with us as a friend, as a fellow traveler, really, through some of life's toughest times. And in order to show that, we looked at a particular story from Scripture. We looked at the story of the death and ultimately the raising of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. Uh, this morning, I want to take another look from another angle at this important question of why God had to become a man. And I want to tell you another story, but this is a lot bigger story. It's a lot longer story. This one's going to be a lot more wide-ranging, and it's going to take us to at least three different passages of the Bible, and it's going to span several thousand years. So much bigger story, but we're going to begin in Genesis uh, chapter, let's begin in chapter 1, toward the end of the chapter I'm going to read several verses in Genesis. We'll skip around a little bit, but starting in verse 26, Genesis 1:26, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Skip over to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good the man should be alone. I will make him a helper. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
We'll stop there for now. This is, of course, the story of how mankind fell into sin. It's a pretty simple story in that, that the man and the woman were given only one prohibition, just one. One thing they weren't allowed to do. And at first glance, you might look at this and think, you know, eating, not eating from one forbidden tree doesn't seem that hard. You know, it's not much of a restriction given how many other trees there were in the garden and how abundantly God had supplied for their needs. But of course, Satan looked at this and he saw a certain opening. And so he got right to work. And the tack that Satan takes in his discussion with Eve is basically this. God is holding out on you. He's holding out. He's holding you back. He just wants to limit you. He just wants to control you. He just wants to keep you from reaching your full potential, from experiencing all the things that he can experience as God and from all the privileges that he can have as God. He wants to keep you from those things. And he knows, God knows, that if you eat this piece of fruit, it will open up for you a whole new world of freedom and discovery and opportunity. And God doesn't want that. God is keeping you down. What you need to do is you need to get out from under this burden of being a creature, of being a dependent being, of having to trust God for everything. And you need to to step into the realm of being your own God. And you know what? This fruit right here is the first step in that direction. See, Satan had been chafing under God's authority for a long time. He knew what it was like to resent being a created being and to want to supplant God and to want to get his hands on some ultimate power. Not to have to depend on God and trust in God and rely on God all the time. And he figured that Adam and Eve, he saw that God had made them in his image and endowed as they were with free will. He thought maybe Adam and Eve would feel the same way. And so Satan's strategy was to sow in them this dissatisfaction with trusting God. And it worked. And it worked. And maybe at second glance, it's not quite as surprising as we would have thought because if you really think about it for a while, it's it's a stronger temptation than we think. Adam and Eve, as they walked through the garden every day, and we don't know how long this took before they actually fell into sin, but as they walked through the garden each day, they had maybe at least once or twice, you'd think they had maybe had a passing thought about, well, there's that tree. I wonder what it would be like to eat from that tree. I know we're not supposed to do it, but I, I wonder why it's different. You know, does it taste different? I wonder what it tastes like. I wonder what it would be like to go over and pick the fruit. And I, I wonder what it would feel like to disobey God. Hmm. And just regular human curiosity was, was probably a pretty strong pull by itself, but not strong enough to make them disobey at this point. And so the serpent is pointing out some even better reasons for them to cross over to the other side. Now the temptation is getting pretty powerful. Yeah. Now that I think about it, maybe God is keeping us down. Why would he do that? Hmm. We know what this temptation looks like, don't we? Admit it, right? We don't like restrictions. We don't like fences. We don't like having to depend on people that are more powerful than we are and feel helpless. We don't like not being in control. And we've known this feeling for pretty much our whole lives, right? We know what Adam and Eve were feeling like. Tell me, parents, okay, those of you who are parents, How did your precious little innocent baby son or daughter react? The first time that they realized there was something that they really wanted, but that they couldn't have, and that you were perfectly capable of giving it to them, but you wouldn't. You're holding out on them. That was really a pretty sight, wasn't it? Probably not. 
But since that age, how much have we really changed, right? Don't we still kind of want to make our own rules? Don't we still resent obedience? Don't we still not really trust God so that even though, yeah, we obey him gladly in most of the little things in life most of the time, but we kind of want to hold back some of the real power and decision making so that when, when it comes to the big important calls that are going to really make a difference, we want to have a say in that. We want to be able to make those calls. Or when it comes to those calls where, where maybe a certain forbidden pleasure that looks really good stands in the way and, and before us, maybe we want to kind of reserve some of the autonomy for times like that and make some of those calls too, right? And it's not just at the individual everyday level either, but as a human race, are we not inventing more and more ways to rebel against God, the smarter and more sophisticated that we become? We're even trying to write God out of human experience altogether, right? We weren't created, come on, we just, we randomly evolve. We aren't defined by God, we get to define ourselves, we determine our own purpose, we design our own existence, we can create our own reality, increasingly. Don't you dare hold us back by limiting human freedom and autonomy. But if you go back and look at this passage, the whole passage that I read, and if you think about it, how much did God really limit us? Really? In the Garden of Eden, it says that God not only created us in His image with the ability to reason and to relate and to love and to choose, and, and, and that's an incredible privilege, but He had also given us real authority. Real authority. For instance, it says there that Adam got to name all of the animals, and whatever Adam named the animal, that's what its name was. He had real authority. God didn't step in and say, Adam, that's a stupid name. Elephant. What are you thinking? Could you maybe try a different one? No, he didn't do that. Adam got to choose. You think about it. God didn't really limit us very much at all. He told the women, they, the, the woman and the man had a real adventure ahead of them. They were to be fruitful and multiply, which if you think about it, has kind of a fun and pleasurable component to it too, right? And then they were supposed to exercise authority over the entire earth and fill it, to, to explore the whole world and to subdue it and to be in charge of it. Think of how much there was to discover, to experience, to achieve, to enjoy, to conquer even. Man was going to be able to put his mark on the whole earth in, in a very real and lasting and meaningful way. Think about what Psalm 8 says. It says that we were made a little lower than the angels, crowned us with glory and honor. All things are put under our feet. God had basically made us the vice president of his creation and vested us with real power and pleasure and privilege and authority. That's a lot, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough because, yes, part of being human Part of being a human being, by definition, is that we are dependent on God. We are created beings. We rely on Him to meet our needs. We are responsible to Him morally, and He calls us to trust Him. And when Adam and Eve committed treason by distrusting God and rebelling against His authority, all of creation was corrupted, man himself most of all. And we see this in the curses that follow this action. I didn't read them, but they have to do with things like pain and childbirth and the nature of work and what happens to the environment, but especially the coming of death into the human experience. Satan had succeeded in taking the pinnacle of God's creation and wrecking it, seemingly beyond repair. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve, it was you and me too, right? We have proved over and over again by our own sinful choices, we've owned their decision. 
We were broken, we were guilty, and we still are, and, we're, and God ha- has, had warned us in Genesis 2.17 that we would die, and now we're destined to die. But that's not the end of the story. Because a mere nine verses after Adam and Eve commit treason and corrupt the whole world by sinking their teeth into that forbidden fruit, God makes a promise. And in making the promise, God really kind of throws down the gauntlet to Satan here. Before he even gets around to dealing with the man and the woman, God speaks to the snake. And he says, it's not over. Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Other translations says, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This discussion with the serpent, of course, is, is, is taking place on two different levels. God is not merely cursing an animal. He is speaking through the snake to the devil himself. And God says to Satan here, you know what? You may think you've won the war because you've successfully corrupted these human beings of mine and the creation that they're living in. But I've got news for you. You will be defeated. You will be judged. In fact, you will be crushed. And the person who takes you down, Satan, is going to be a man. Just like them. He's going to be one of them. And Satan had to be wondering, what? How could God ever pull that off? But God had a secret plan up his sleeve that Satan at this point would never have anticipated. It was a strategy that was so daring, so unexpected, and yet so costly for God that it would be almost unthinkable. God himself would become one of us. And as a man, as a limited, weak, dependent human being, God would personally defeat Satan and redeem the human race in the process. Do you understand why Jesus had to be a man? Fast forward maybe 4,000 years, give or take. Matthew chapter 4. You can turn there if you like, but I'll I'll read the the relevant parts. But the scene in Matthew chapter 4 is not a garden. It is a barren desert. And God has brought into this world another Adam, a second Adam. And this second Adam is in the desert. He's in the wilderness. And he's been fasting. And he's all alone. And he's hungry. He's very hungry. He's hungrier than Adam and Eve ever got in that garden. And so the devil figures, well, I know, he knew who it was. He said, I know this man here is actually God. I know it's actually God the Son in the flesh. But after all, he's still a man. And so he's subject to temptation. So let's have a go at it. And the devil comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become bread. Think about it, you're so hungry. Here's some bread. He's saying, Jesus, why are you putting up with this? Have you forgotten who you are? You're the son of God for Pete's sake. You're not a creature. You're not dependent. You're, not, you're all powerful. Why are you playing this game trying to be one of these pathetic lower beings? It's beneath you. You know, you can get out from under this this creatureliness anytime you want to. All it takes is one word. And he was right. One word. One word. That's how close Jesus was to rebelling if he chose to. He didn't have to take a bite of a piece of fruit. He didn't have to so much as lift a finger. All he had to do was say one word. 
and he could cast off this lowly humanity and throw off these chains of weakness and dependence. And, and Jesus did speak a word, but it wasn't the word that Satan was hoping for. After, saying Je- after Jesus said, it is written, the next, next thing he says is, it is written, remember what the next word was that came out of Jesus' mouth? Man. Man. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And throughout this entire ordeal, all three temptations, this one, the one about jumping off the temple, the one about worshiping Satan, getting the kingdoms of the earth, all three temptations, Jesus answers Satan, not as the son of God, but as a mere man, obeying the word of his God. He goes toe-to-toe with Satan in a moment of particular weakness, and he defeats Satan as a man. But Satan knows something. Satan knows that this here isn't the end of the story, and this isn't the biggest temptation. This is, this is like a regular season game here. You know, the Super Bowl is coming. And the Bible tells us that, that, that Satan left Jesus alone for a while because there was going to be a more opportune time. There was going to be the right time, and that's when Satan would show up again. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, it's the right time. It's Satan's time. It's his chance. It's the hour of darkness. It's the ultimate opportunity that, that Satan gets to, to derail God's plan and to compromise Christ and to complete the destruction of humanity that he had started back in Genesis 3. And once again, we find ourselves in a garden. In a garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. You know, in the book of Romans, in chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, he's talking about Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, overflow to the many? For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass, one sin, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. One act of righteousness. What was that one act? And when did it take place? Well, certainly Paul here is referring to Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, which the Bible, interestingly enough, often calls a tree. But when was the key moment? When was the decision point? When when was the battle decided? I think it happened right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus told his disciples, he said, guys, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of of death. And he asked three of his disciples just to come with him and kind of stay awake with him while he prayed a few steps away. Jesus, in less than 12 hours, would have the sin of the whole world placed on his shoulders and his body was shaking with dread and anxiety. He went a little farther up into the garden and he told his heavenly father that he didn't want to go through with it. Verse 39 of Matthew 26. My father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. The burden was too great to bear and if possible, Jesus wanted out. And Satan, as far as we know, does not make a personal appearance in the garden, but you can almost hear him whispering in Jesus' ear, can't you? Now you finally get it. It's too much to handle. It's too hard. And that's okay, Jesus, because let's face it, the plan was never going to work anyway. What makes you think that this is going to make any difference? Your chosen people, the Jews, after God prepared them for thousands of years, they've rejected you. 
your followers are not too bright and they don't understand you. And your three closest friends who are supposed to be praying with you, look at them over there. Do you see them? They're sound asleep. That's how much they care. It's time to give it up and get out from under this burden. But at this point, Jesus, the second Adam, says something that the first Adam never thought to say. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. The ultimate words of submission to God. And once again, he had to do it three times. Did you notice that? Because Satan wouldn't leave him alone, so he had to come back again and again and repeat his words of submission and obedience. It wasn't easy. And so this man from Nazareth, under the greatest temptation ever faced by anyone, prevailed over the devil as a human being, willing to obey his God and die for his fellow men and women. Because in order for our sin to be taken away, it had to be paid for by a man, by a true human being, by a a member of the human family. Only a man could represent us before God. And so Jesus became a man, and he died the perfect human death in our place. And so according to Romans 8, verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Why the incarnation? Why did he have to be a man? Because God had said way back in Genesis that Satan would be defeated by a man, by the seed of the woman. A man had to obey God once and for all. A man had to reverse Adam's fateful decision. If, and only a man could, could die for the sins of his fellow human beings. And guess what? He did it. He pulled it off. He won. And by trusting in him, we are all set free, as we've sung this morning, from death. He did it. Praise God. And as we continue to celebrate through this this birth of our Lord, this month where we celebrate the nativity and the coming of Jesus, and as we come to the table today, let's worship him. Let's thank him. Let's trust in him by the power of the Holy Spirit that he puts within us. Let's obey him as he leads us. Let's honor him when we succeed and when we fail. Let's bring our failure back to his cross where it was forgiven forever. And let's remember that in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, God calls us to have the same attitude in ourselves that he had. I'll just read these verses about Jesus. Who being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. 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 Let's pray as two of the elders come forward to help with communion.